Welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so that you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I had tried different diets, countless exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that thrives on you not really getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love, play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business all while feeling great. To give you a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to get the top 10 world-class nutrition tips from the experts that have been on the show, and you will see what simple health can be. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horowski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, episode number 51. Today's episode, I interview the exuberant animal himself, Frank Forensich. Be sure to stick around for the end to hear the answer to where did everybody come from? How to fight the mismatch of an ancient body in a modern world, as well as Frank's favorite movement to do at the airport. Alrighty guys, another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast today. And on the line, I have the exuberant animal himself, Frank Forensic. I wanted to make sure I got his name right here because it's a good one. Uh, but Frank, first question that I ask everybody is, tell us about your health journey in 10 sentences or less. I could do that. Um, when I was a little kid, I was really sick. I had a lot of health allergies, uh, digestive problems, skin problems, that sort of thing. And um, I missed a lot of school. And it wasn't until I got into junior high and high school where I got involved in swimming and water polo. And I spent a lot of time in the water and the exercise really transformed my health. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I was as fit as anybody. And then I got involved in martial arts and rock climbing and everything took off from there. So that, and, uh, that's my health journey. And, and where is, where is your health journey led you? Like where, where are you at right now on that journey? Well, for me, one of the biggest questions of all is where did my body come from? And I got intrigued with this in college, and that's when I started to study human evolution and put that together with my fitness practices and wondering about, geez, where did my body come from? What is my ancestry? And that's what led me to go to Africa a few times. And I'm still going down that path today, studying where my body came from and hoping that that will inform my, uh, my behavior and my studies going forward. Do you have a, like even uh, like a uh, condensed version of where you think your body came from or you feel it came from? Uh, what well, does that so, mean to you? Well, that's pretty easy to answer. Yeah. Um, we know that 99% of our history has been spent as hunting and gathering um, and scavenging people in wild outdoor environments. And, you know, classically in Africa, but also Asia, North America. And we are able to sketch out pretty well what that lifestyle was like. 
So we know some of the fundamentals. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of diversity in ancient peoples, a lot of diversity in native tribes, but we can, we can come up with some common themes about the way our lifestyle has been until quite recently. All right, all right. Now, one of the things that you talked about, uh, like I, I read The Exuberant Animal. I know you have a bunch of books. Like I think your writing is awesome. So I think everybody, first of all, should just go check out some of this because this is some great stuff. And I'm sure you're there to talk on uh, some of the topics even today. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you about is uh, when I was reading your book, and I have listened to George Carlin, so I heard him speaking. <laughs> I, I remember listening to this, and he started talking about germs. And... Mm -hmm talking about like hey he grew up like they were just dirty kids like getting out and about like not really worrying about it but why is that such a big deal like getting outside getting in nature not being afraid of germs what is what is with that what does that really mean right his famous line is we, the immune system needs germs to practice on. yes <laughs> and that's a really interesting thought because the immune system i think has memory it does learn and if you grow up in a highly antiseptic environment, like a lot of people do these days, then the immune system does not have the, uh, the raw material to practice on, and so it doesn't develop properly. And this is what we've done. The, um, the discovery of microbiology in the, in the late um, 19th century, people kind of overreacted to that, and it became this fear of germs and this paranoia about getting dirty. And now the pendulum is swinging the other way with the hygiene hypothesis, the discovery that uh, children who are not exposed to dirt and animals have much higher rates of asthma. And this is becoming widely acknowledged. So we, we know now that uh, getting outside, especially as children, is fundamental. Now, Frank, was that because you said you had like a lot of allergies as a kid, like some skin problems, this and that. Were you brought up in a more of a sterile environment like as you were very young and exposed to even more as you got uh older like you said uh, even with the swimming and everything then too yeah i'm not sure that applies in my particular case because i i did get outdoors uh, okay quite a bit, and i was in contact with animals and dirt and that sort of thing i, I think there were other reasons but uh, for a lot of kids it is a problem and all of this antimicrobial stuff you see in the supermarket, this war on germs, it's really detrimental health, I think. Now, when you're getting outside, because I'm sure you probably get outside every single day, what are things that you like to do? What are, what are some of your favorite activities when you're outdoors? Well, I spent a lot of years rock climbing. And for me, that was the ideal way to get, um, get the excitement, to get the movement, to get the exposure to sun and to dirt because you're sticking your hands in cracks and you're you're rubbing your body up against stone and then on the approach the up and down you're, you're in contact with plants and and water and it's it's pretty much a full body full sensory kind of engagement and now I don't climb as much as I used to but I do similar journeys in the mountains you know I'll go up and and it's more hiking and less climbing now but it's the same kind of thing I really like going off trail and going uh, scrambling on rocks and forging my own path so that's that's really a lot of fun as well Frank you talk about uh, in the book daily rhythms too uh, and mm. I'm sure this was an integral part like you're talking about okay 99 percent of history we we probably had 
all fairly similar daily rhythms. Uh, right. Is is there anything that you have now, like as a morning practice, as an evening practice, or just like specific practices throughout the day uh, that you really adhere to, or that you use to kind of keep your circadian rhythms uh, in line? Well, I'm just as bad as everybody in a sense because I've got the electronic devices and I've got I've got that challenge in my life, but for me the most important thing is getting out first thing in the morning and getting some light. And that's, that's fundamental. Um, looking for a sense of this paleolithic rhythm, this high contrast lifestyle. And that was another thing that was really powerful in climbing. Because when you go out and you do a multi-day climb, you are just massively engaged physically and you're hitting it really hard for either a really long day or several days and then you come back down, you get back to camp, you shower up and then it's casual for a few days. And that's, for me, that's the classic rhythm. Now, I've, I've deviated from that somewhat. As, as I've gotten older and I, I spend more time writing, more time on the computer, but still, that's something that when springtime rolls around, I'll be back in that rhythm. So then you also will follow uh, like seasonal rhythms as well, too, right? Seasonal rhythms, yes. Okay. That, I think, is really important. It is something that gets lost in the modern world, especially with sports training, we're, we're trying to do year-round training for kids, that kind of thing. And it doesn't make any sense. I mean, we need to look at the seasons and craft our movement practices around those seasons, just like a hunter would. I mean, that, that's the way we've done it for uh, millions of years. Now, what would a basic outline of that look like uh, as far as movement practices throughout the year even? Well, it depends on what habitat your tribe is working in. And there's certainly some hunter-gatherer tribes where the, the style of hunting, depending on the season, would have been more or less active, more or less sedentary. You know, maybe you're hunting a particular kind of animal where you set out traps or you wait for the game to come to you. And in certain seasons, that would make sense. And in other times of the year, it might mean running long distances, chasing down your prey, or doing persistence hunting, where you're walking and walking and walking for days until this, this herbivore uh, can no longer stay ahead of you. And then you just shoot them with the arrow or whatever. <laughs> Seems okay. almost too simple. <laughs> right, right. Uh, okay, Frank. So talking about just even younger kids now and growing up and always just honing in on one sport even a lot of times like one maybe two sports but what is the disadvantage to that and why why is it so important to still just get out and play like regardless of the sport whether it's just tag climbing a tree or just doing 10 different sports in a weekend with all your buddies Yeah, that's the classic. I, I seem to remember from childhood playing many different sports on a Sunday afternoon or that sort of thing. But the problem with sports, and I love sports, but sports have a really distinct negative side to them, and that's the specialization. And the, the body is not really crafted for that. We, we are good at doing a lot of different things. That's why human beings are so successful is because we're highly adaptable and we can learn almost anything, but the dose makes the poison, right? You go too far with a movement specialization and tissue starts to break down. And so people who are specialists are always fighting injury. 
this. I mean, that, that really goes with the territory. And we think it's something wrong with us, or we're not eating right, or we're not, we need more ice, or we need a, a, a certain therapist to fix our biomechanics. But I think it's really woven into the whole idea of specialization. You, if you specialize too narrow, narrowly, you are putting yourself at risk for all of these things. So I think we got to be careful. And what I see happening now is a lot of trainers are trying to craft disciplines and practices that are less specialized and they're more about the human animal and less about excelling in one particular sport. And I can definitely relate to that. I mean, I'm, I'm a physical therapist and in my practice, that's what I see constantly is just that, well, for, for what I see, it's usually not uh, a specific sport, but it's just people sitting at a desk constantly. And that still is going to lead to tissue breakdown. Uh, it's, right. it's almost thought of as, well, I'm not, I'm not out there exercising. I'm not doing this and that. So I'm not going to have those thing, tendinopathies and so on and so forth. But something like that can even, it's, you're still doing the same repeated pattern, a very specialized pattern uh, day in and day out. So what, what can we do to combat that? I mean, do you have any recommendations for people that, okay, not really getting out as much or what are just simple things to be able to do, uh, to help avoid that even? Well, rotating your activity and rotating your behavior in any way that you can. I, I know what it's like. We are all sort of glued to the computer now and that's, that's kind of unavoidable, but still getting out and getting some diversity in your life, whether it is playing a sport or dancing or just doing intuitive movement, grab a medicine ball and do whatever comes out. Don't be too over-reliant on doing it right. I, think, I see so many people who, I'm not going to start exercising because I'm afraid I'm going to hurt myself because I don't know the right way to do it. And I think people are hamstrung right at the outset with that attitude. It's like, no, we've been, we've been teaching ourselves how to move for a very long time. And we, we are fully capable of doing that. Uh, so, I, think, I think that's... <laughs> I'm sorry? Uh, oh, follow your nose. Teach, your own, teach yourself. Yeah. How to, yeah. I like that because, yeah, you don't have to get so hung up on... Oh, is this is this the perfect way to do it? Did my shoulder do what it was meant to do? Was my spine moving properly, and so on and so forth? Uh, that's that's actually a really good takeaway. I think people can make uh, and just implement today. It's like okay, well, maybe it's not perfect, but it's probably better than not doing anything at all. Right, right. Yeah, ask yourself how many things can I do with a small medicine ball, and you will find. There are thousands of things you can do with a small medicine ball, and even a stone, even a rock, or a tree, or a log. I mean, there's—it's a question of how creative you want to be. And I think that brings into play now. Okay, we're we're not only focusing on the movement; we're bringing the mind, the creativity into all of this. Uh, because, as you explain even in the book, like the two aren't in isolation. Uh, they they have to be fully integrated with one another. Otherwise, we're probably not going to learn many movements for ourselves. Right, right. Yeah, creativity is key. I think a lot of people look for recipes and formulas and prescriptions. They want to be told exactly what to do all the time by the experts. But really, I think the solution lies in 
being creative, teaching yourself how to adapt, because everybody's life is different. Everybody's circumstance, everybody's challenge, everybody's personal history is different, and the experts can help, but still, it's, it's a question of being creative. Very nice. Any, anything that you uh, like to do to express your creativity outside of movement? Outside of movement? Yeah. Well, I, I do some graphic art. I do some manual art, that sort of thing. I, I play the drums. I, I do a few things like that. But still, um, the possibilities for creative movement are almost endless. And you start with dance and try and imagine... Because remember, it went from gathering to hunting to dance. Dance was the first sort of non-mandatory form of human movement. And it came out of gesture. It came out of this desire to tell a story. So what the way you use your body then is a form of expression. And that, I think, is, is maybe even more interesting, this idea of exercise. You know, you're just trying to express yourself. And don't worry. When it comes to expression, there is no right way. It's, it's art is what it is. I love that. Like the, the using movement and exercise is just whatever you want to call it as, as an art form itself. I mean, yeah. your body yeah. is your canvas at that point, and you can do whatever you want with it. I, I love right. that. Your body's your canvas and your life is the medium. That's your artistic medium that you're working with. And I think dancers are really into this, but there's, there's kind of this, um, this gulf between the, the physical trainer community and the dance community. And I think these two communities need to, to share more because uh, the, the dance community's got a lot to offer, and, and so do the, the trainers. So kind of put those two ideas together. Now, is there anybody in the dance community that you're a big fan of that you look at their work that you just like to study in general? I'm not up to date. I mean, I was uh, was a big fan of Barishnikov and and some other dancers of their day, but I'm not up to date on on the new people. So Barishnikov turned me on, and and of course, so did uh, Bruce Lee. I mean, that was his whole thing is to move. His style, his so-called style, Jeet Kune Do, referring to the style of no style. The idea being that if you're in a combat situation and you use a, uh, a standardized form of movement, you're going to be in trouble because the enemy, <laughs> the opponent, does whatever the opponent will. And so the, the way to succeed there is to be completely adaptable, completely fluid, completely able to modify your movement depending on the demands of the situation. So Bruce Lee, huge influence on my thinking here. Um, and, and a lot of other people too. You know? If you could meet Bruce Lee, what would you want to ask him? If you could have met him? Oh boy. Um, well, I, I would love to have him around these days and ask him about the state of the human body and all this lifestyle disease that so many people have and why people feel so alienated to their bodies. Because for him, I mean, he was so completely in his body, it would probably come as a real shock to him to see the state of the modern human body and, and how far people have gotten from their bodies. So it would be it would be really interesting to have that conversation with him. I, I agree. I think uh, I, 
think the the questions for him could be endless at this point to just yeah. see his take on things. But an- another question that I have for you is, I, I guess going off of uh, another great thinker, if you will, uh, and this was in the book several times, and I just want to ask you, just because I'm curious for your response, and that is, speaking of Albert Einstein here, is the universe friendly? Oh, okay. Th- this is great because... Um, what he did, and, and I think maybe inadvertently, was he really put a point on the human condition, the human experience. And I've studied a lot about stress. And this seems to me to be the fundamental question that, that every person, every infant, every child, and every sapient animal, too, asks of the world when they're, when they're born, even, even in the prenatal environment we're all asking this question is the world friendly is the universe friendly and that is such a poignant question because it drives the autonomic nervous system whatever answer you give here is going to drive whether you come up with a sympathetic nervous system response or a parasympathetic response so are you going to go fight flight freeze or are you going to go feed and breed or rest and digest Are you going to mobilize the tissue in your body for movement and action? Or are you going to do rest and repair? And that all comes from this, the answer that you give to this question, is the world friendly? So for me, that's great. Um, The other part of this that I've really followed this guy, Robert Sapolsky, who's written a lot about stress. He's out of Stanford. And he points to our experience of control and predictability as being fundamental to how we experience stress. So if you've got a good sense of control, then you're going you're to experience a lot less stress. Same thing for predictability. So it's, um, it's very much a psychological thing, the, this stress response. It's not just your environment. It's how you interpret it. Going off of uh, Sapolsky's work, because... His big book was uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, I believe. Was that it? Right. Okay. So what, what, is, what would be either your recommendation or what does he recommend for you to be able to control or uh, can make your stress levels even maybe more predictable? Well, the problem here is that a lot of it has to do with affluence and social rank. So if you are of a high socioeconomic status – You've got more control and predictability in your life. And there's no getting around that, that people of high SES have less stress and less disease. So it's, um, can we hold on for one second? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, it's my dog is being a, a problem. That's not a problem. <laughs> he's, he's got this squeaky toy and no, no. Talking about SES and stress, social economic status. This is such a big subject and it's really inconvenient because what it means is that health follows a social gradient. And in societies all over the world where this has been studied, in general, people of higher rank tend to be healthier than people of lower rank. And it it even applies to non-human animals like baboons. So Sapolsky studied the baboons and this is what he found. So it's really tough because if people high economic status experience less stress and better health, then then what do we do? You know, the thing that 
that if we're really concerned about public health, we have to somehow help people of lower SES to have more power, more control, more predictability. And what I see in the health and fitness community, a lot of us are trying to help people of high SES become healthier. And that's, you know, we go where the money is because that's, that's how our system works. But it's pretty tough, you know. It's, um, it's something that we're going to have to come to grips with if we want to make improvements in public health. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Any ideas on how to even make that plausible to make it really... Uh, just a healthier nation, a healthier world even. Yeah, I don't know. The, uh, the studies I've seen show that, that societies where, where people are of more nearly equal standing tend to be healthier overall. So this huge gap between high SES and low SES that we have in the U.S., that's detrimental to everybody, not just the people of low SES. So somehow we need policies and legislation and that sort of thing, uh, work by nonprofits, anything possible to help shrink that gap, and that, that would be good for everybody. So. Excellent, excellent. Now, how about how does how does food come into play with this? Because this is something that not everybody has access to food, but you talk about four four food groups in the book here: saturated fat, alcohol, sugar, and caffeine was one of the was one of the statements. Uh, but I was gonna ask you, like what is what is even like your eating practice look like? Do you have anything or just general guidelines that you like to adhere to with that? Yeah, you know, I I've always liked Michael Pollan. And for me, I appreciate the way he lays it out in such a simple form. You know, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. I mean, that works for me. I don't yeah, I've tried a few different things. Back in the 80s, I was really interested in this low-fat thing, and a lot of people were, and it it kind of worked for me. I think I could have done better than I did. I, I got caught up in that craze, and now I've gone to more normal, normalized fat intake, and I feel good because of that, but uh, I'm not a real zealot. Um, I appreciate the vegetarian side of things and I, I worry about what we're doing to the planet and what we do to animals with industrial agriculture. I don't find it particularly ethical or moral what we're doing, but I love meat. I love to eat meat and so I try and be selective as possible. But um, I don't have any magic formulas beyond that. I, I'm, I'm pretty much of a practical guy and I'm an opportunist. You know, to be, um, you know, moving about through the world and trying to make, again, we're, we're talking about creativity and being an opportunist and trying to put together a situation and choices that'll work for you and get the best result. So I like it. I like it. Uh, just because you had mentioned those things in the book, uh, I also wanted to ask you, what's your biggest vice? Do you have one? Do you have anything? Oh, my biggest vice. Well, you know, I love sugar. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when uh, we used to climb big mountains, we would take we would take some pretty nasty stuff. I mean, by today's standards, but um, you know, we'd be out for two, three, four days at a time, and you take whatever you can fit in your pack, and it's probably it's never enough. But um, we loved it. We loved it. You know, the other thing that people 
haven't been talking about enough when it comes to food is the placebo effect. Because uh, I've been to some of these conferences and they're dominated by people who really study bio, uh, biochemistry. And there's some really great work out there and the, you know, the biochemistry of sugars, the biochemistry of fat, how we metabolize these things. And that's all really interesting. But I also think that we need to talk about the psychology of food too because obviously food has different meanings for different people. And if you ate a particular kind of food in a certain context going forward, that food will have a certain meaning for you years or even decades later. And that's something that we just don't measure and by and large we don't talk about it because uh, it's pretty complicated to do that. So to say to ask which foods are healthy, that's a really tricky question. You know, if I if I got a lot of comfort and pleasure out of eating, say, a pancake breakfast when I was a child, and then 30 years later, I still get that same sense of comfort and security from eating that same breakfast, who's to say what the exact response would be? I'm, I'm not sure. And they've done another um, series of tests where they, um, I can't remember the woman's name, I believe it was Alicia Crumb. She served her subjects milkshakes, same exact stuff in the two groups, same milkshake in both. But one, she prefaced it by saying, this is the high-energy decadence milkshake. And it's loaded with fat, and it's loaded with calories, and it's just decadent. And the other one, it was sort of a, it was labeled as a slim, fast, low-cal energy drink. And then she measured the hormonal responses of the two groups. And they were wildly different just based on the labels not the chemical content of these two milkshakes. So to put it another way, it was the story that went along with the food that changed the chemical reactions in their body. And for me, this is really powerful. And I love talking about story. I think that is something that, that needs to be part of our conversation as well. I, I think that's another very powerful thing is just how do you feel about what you're eating? It really <laughs> is like if... You could still look at something that, quote unquote, would be healthy. Maybe like, okay, you look at, you see some veggies, you see like some grass-fed meat on a plate, like just everything like prepped nicely and stuff. And even if you went into that probably with a negative attitude, I'm sure something like that's even, for the most part, recognized as healthy versus even a milkshake could still have detrimental effects on the body if presented in that manner. Right, right. And then there's, there's the, the group orientation, too, because food has social functions. It acts as glue between people. And when food operates that way, you don't ask questions about the biochemical content of food. Now you're looking at what it does for group cohesion. And if that food is part of a ritual or, a, you know, a gathering that brings people together, maybe that's the really important part. So... You know, food is tricky. <laughs> it's very tricky. Oh my goodness. I, I, I love just thinking about all this kind of stuff because it's, it's so important. But now I, I'm curious to think or to ask you too, do you have anything that you do as, as part of a group, as part of a 
culture with a group, whether it be a group of people, a large amount, small amount, anything like that, that you do on a regular basis? Well, what we've done are some of these exuberant animal training weekends. And those are really interesting because they're full immersion events. And people show up and I structure the, I sort of choreograph the whole experience so that when people show up, there's no need to leave and go to a restaurant. We, we do everything together. And so the emphasis is on the shared participation. We do movement. We do meditation. We have the meals together. And, and we do presentations. So that cohesion, the food plays a real... We, we obviously buy good ingredients. We get the best food we can. But it's the sharing and the, the shared uh, preparation of the meals as well that goes a long way. And I think the food becomes even better than that. <laughs> also talking about the story, Frank, and you, you, you do certainly do a lot of writing. Is there anything that you're working on right now, uh, whether it be a story, whether it be a writing, uh, either, like for your blog, any books that you're working on? Yes. For me, so often I end up getting back to this idea of mismatch, which is, is basically ancient bodies living in modern world. That's the mismatch, and it's profound. And there's, there are some people who are talking about this, uh, evolutionary biologists talk about the mismatch, and some physicians talk about the mismatch. But it, it's really striking to me just the magnitude of the mismatch, because our bodies are sculpted by evolution to live outdoors. And there are people now who spend, well, I saw a calculation by New Scientist magazine, people living an average of like 78 years, and now the estimate is that people, of that 78 years, people spend like some 70 years indoors. So it's roughly 90% of your life is spent indoors, and that's a huge, huge mismatch. And that fact alone would put up red flags about public health and that sort of thing. So I love to write about mismatch and everything that flows from that and our animal bodies encountering modern culture. Really interested in other forms of culture that um, embrace the body and embrace the earth. For example, Native American culture, that, that's something that really intrigues me right now and I'm spending a lot more time with that. Any specific uh, Native American cultures that you are studying? Well, I'm, I'm really interested in the Plains Indians and the Lakota Sioux, and I'm actually planning a trip out to uh, South Dakota to do some visit out there. So I, I think that that's really exciting because they're, they're looking for a new old way, as we are, a way to put the new and the old together, and some of them are succeeding and trying to find a way to keep traditions, create, uh, maintain respect for the earth while still functioning in the modern world. So again, there, there will be many, many solutions to mismatch, depending on who you are and what, what your context is. I love that you said there will be many, many solutions to stuff like this, because everybody, I feel like, is still searching for that one right answer, that, that one hey, this is how it's going to work. Everybody's going to be healthy this way. Everybody's going to move better this way. And it, it's not the case. We all have to find, really, I feel like, what works for us personally. Right. And over the years, I've heard a lot of people with extremist 
solutions, if you will. You know, and that means, okay, we have to go back to the land. We have to buy a big chunk of land out in the woods somewhere. We have to start our farm or, you know, commune, tribe thing. We have to do that. And that would be an ultimate solution, but nobody can really do that. Very few people have the ability to do that. And if you live in a city and it's really a long ways to get to nature, well, you have to adapt. And everybody's got their own particular circumstance and their way to do a new old way. So we're putting it together and all of us are kind of <laughs> struggling to find that. Now, Frank, is there, is there anything that you're uh, questioning right now that you're skeptical of as far as like health movement goes? Yes. Um, I see a lot of activity in the paleo community that um, is really interesting and a lot of activity around CrossFit and yeah, I have some problems with CrossFit. I, I think that CrossFit is doing some good work. There's definitely some good CrossFit studios out there doing good work, but a lot of people are getting injured and CrossFit has become another movement specialty. So it's like a sport and it's not paleo. A lot of people think that CrossFit is paleo, but it's not. There's no, there were no barbells in the paleo period. <laughs> there, was nobody, there was nobody flipping truck tires in the paleo. So you can't, it's just too much of a stretch to say that CrossFit is paleo. The only way that CrossFit is paleo is that some people in the CrossFit movement eat a paleo diet. That's the only connection there. But if you were to train somebody to go in a time machine and go back to a hunter-gatherer era, you wouldn't train them in CrossFit. It wouldn't help. To, to survive outdoors in a genuinely paleo environment, you have to train for that. And this is something that a lot of people aren't getting, this idea of specificity and training. If you want a particular outcome, you have to train specifically for that particular outcome. If you want if you want X, you have to train for X. You can't do some other thing. And we're always looking for, you know, shortcuts and workarounds, and they aren't there. You know, you want to be a better hunter, you got to go out and hunt. So, yeah, CrossFit is something that I, I'm, I'm not that excited about CrossFit, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Speaking of hunting, though, uh, do you go hunting yourself at all? No. I, I have yet to to find a situation that would support that. I don't know any hunters myself. Um, you know, I try and mimic that when I go outdoors in my hiking, being quiet and being out and being observant, that sort of thing. But um, where I live, there's, there's not that much um, opportunity to go hunting. And, um, you know, that's something I could see myself getting into at some point, but not yet. All right. All right. Uh, how about talking like, Okay, the exuberant animal, like that's that's this whole thing here. What animal, though, uh, would you say that best describes you? Ooh, <laughs> well, I'm I'm very fond of my Labrador Retriever. I, he's he's great, and he he's got the play drive that's working for him. And you know, I've I've taught him the basic commands, but um, otherwise, he's had no training, and he's a tremendous athlete just pre-wired out of the box. You know, he, he has become this, this wonderful athlete all on his own. 
And I'm just so in awe of that. It's not like he needed a personal trainer or a coach. He just enjoys movement, loves movement, and has this really strong play drive. And he's quite inspirational. Plus, he lives this high-contrast lifestyle, which I'm, I'm just in awe of. Because when he plays, he plays really hard. And then he comes home, and he'll sleep for 10, 12 hours at a shot. So big inspiration. Uh, that's something I notice with my dogs. Uh, I, I, I notice in my dogs as well. Like, hey, first thing in the morning, we're usually going for our walk, going through the woods, going to the park, whatever it is, taking my son along. And they get so excited right before we're about to leave. And then just, they're bolting. But like you said, once we get back, it's getting a quick drink of water. And then they're passing out on the floor, on the couch, like wherever they want to for the next few hours. Because they have just gone all out. Uh, but you talk about uh, play, and you've also talked about play and intelligence being very closely related, even like in some of your writings. Would you care to expand upon that, please? Well, the animal behavior people have looked at this, and there's a pretty clear uh, correlation between species that play more and that are more intelligent. So, for example, Carnivores play more than herbivores. Carnivores have a greater range of behaviors that are developed through play. And they're, they're a little smarter, and so they can, they can hunt down these animals. So I think it works both ways. The more you play, the more you facilitate your intelligence. And intelligent animals tend to play more. So it's, um, I think they match up quite nicely. Um, now, okay, I, this just popped into my head and like as we're talking. So if we tried to become more of a carnivore, would we be able to increase like our play creativity, increase our intelligence in any way, do you think? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Um, the beauty of being a human is that we are omnivorous, and so we've got all these capabilities, and our play behavior repertoire is immense. That's why it's really hard to study play in humans because so many things that we do can be playful and it, so much of it depends on context. What's interesting is it, they, can, they can do this in rats because rats have a really stereotype kind of play bout behavior that can be studied because it's always the same and there's a window of development and if, if the animals are pre, uh, prevented from playing during that time, they uh, develop social deficits as adults. So it's really, this is something we know, you know, play deprivation is a real problem. But as humans, so many things that we do can be play. And even just sitting and daydreaming can be playful. It doesn't look like much, but we can play just about anything. So, so how about, uh, what would you consider your most unusual habit? Unusual habit? Oh, I'm going to have to think about that one. I don't know what's the most unusual. Maybe the, this persistence of my, my interest in play, I, I think that's, that's pretty unusual for adults to maintain that interest going forward. And, uh, we give it up early on. A lot of people in high school, that's the end of it. you know. And If it even goes that long. Yeah, if it goes that long. And so I think for me, I'm... I'm willing to be weird. That's something I realized early on, that if I wanted to move my body through the course of my whole life, I would have to 
um, exposed myself a little bit to ridicule, you might say. And so that's why if I am uh, about to get on an airplane and I'm going to be on that airplane for two or three or four hours, I will do a little bit of movement in the departure lounge of the airport. And you don't really see people doing that, but uh, I do it because I... I'm not going to be happy sitting in the airplane, and I'd like to get a little bit of movement before I do. So that's that's unusual. What are some of your favorite movements that you like to do uh, getting ready to hop on a plane? <laughs> anything simple, anything that people can really just kind of take home? Well, squats and lunges, of course. That, that's, that's pretty standard. But the other thing I, I love the most is this figure eight shape that I do. So you, if you imagine you're holding a medicine ball, and then you make these circular arcs that feed left to right, and so now you're making that figure eight shape, which is common to all kinds of traditions, whether it's dance or martial arts. You see this figure eight in one form or another everywhere. And... If you have a medicine ball, great, but if not, you can still make the same shape. And that, that's a full body move that gets your hips talking to your shoulders. Uh, it integrates the lower and the upper body very nicely. So I love that one. I could see myself doing that like with my book bag when I'm in the airport or something. Like Normally that would just, yeah, okay, have it there. But yeah, instead of just like to replace a medicine ball a little bit, to just get yeah. moving a little bit more. So the other thing that... Uh, that is really catching fire right now is the work of Amy Cuddy, who did that TED Talk about the power pose. You might remember this, where she is a professor at the business school at Harvard, and she tested people doing simple poses with the arms outstretched and basically taking up space, this posture of social dominance and how that turns on testosterone and breaks cortisol levels down, and even just holding a power pose in the airport departure lounge or wherever, that can be beneficial. It's weird to do that, but so what? <laughs> Healthy. Uh, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna end up feeling better on the flight, and because yeah, of it, yeah. then for sure. <laughs> now, Frank, what is what is your vision for a healthy future? What do you think health will look like in ten years, or say even a hundred years from now? Well, what I'm hoping for is that this this movement that we call green fitness or green exercise is going to coalesce. And all these trainers and coaches and teachers out there who are promoting the same ideas that all revolve around getting outside, moving your body outside, I think this is going to coalesce. People will have less interest in sports and more interest in this green fitness, which I'm not crazy about that label, but that's, that's the basic idea. And a lot of health professionals are moving that way. And What would you like to call I it if you don't like that label? Well, we hear natural fitness and there's, there's, some, uh, there's some controversy around that label. So I don't know. I don't know what we call it. I call it exuberant animal. And there we go. That, All right. that, that works for me. But uh, more and more people are coming to consensus. And we might even have a a variation on uh, Michael Pollan's three-part prescription here. So instead of saying, eat real food, mostly plants, not too much, we might say, eat real food, go outside, and move your ass. That would be the prescription going forward. And I can see a lot more people getting into that. I mean, if that's all we do, eat real food, go outside, move your ass, if that's all we do, that would be a big, beautiful step forward. 
that is one of the simplest yet most profound just summations of just overall health I think that I've ever heard. Just so succinct and yet, oh my goodness, that hey, you blew my mind on that. You really did. I love how you put that. Thank you for that. Yeah, you know, and uh, a lot of doctors are getting on board with this now too. And we're hearing stories occasionally about the doctor who will write a prescription that says, in effect, the same thing, you know, eat real food, go outside, move your ass. Um, the more the medical community gets behind this, the better. And I, I see some signs that that may start to happen, although that's a slow, that's kind of a hard sell in that community. Um, a lot of doctors don't ask about food. They don't ask about exercise. They don't ask about our relationship with the natural world. They don't ask about our life support. You know, what is your relationship with your life support system? They don't ask those questions. And that's got to change. About speaking of change, what is the most recent change that you've made to your health? Getting a bicycle was a big deal. I did. I went for a lot of years without having a bicycle. That's made a huge difference for me. I, I do more. I used to do a lot of road biking, and then I got out of it for a long time. Back um, a mountain bike and a road bike now, and that's great. Works with the dog. Or you know, it's one more excuse to get out, and I love it. And it's a good way to dovetail with. You know, sometimes I don't have um, my training partners around to play with. And if I've been at the computer all morning, banging on the keyboard, clicking the mouse, well, get on the bike, and then it's great. I love bikes in all their forms. I like that. That's that's always a fun one. I, it's funny. Like uh, I finally got like I moved out a few years ago, but I finally uh, just recently got my bike, my old bike from my parents' house, and everything like that. And it's I think as the weather clears up and stuff, that's going to be one of the things that I want to get out doing because. I miss it. It was just a fun way to go play, whether it be riding around the neighborhood or just going to the park, going through the woods, anything like that. Yeah, and that's a bicycles are an example of a new old way because it, it, it's new. It's this, especially now, these beautiful carbon technologies and the components are just awesome. But it's an old way too because you're outdoors, you're moving your body, and it, it enables you to move really strongly outdoors. And the more we can have these new old way solutions, the better. So, Frank, what type of either health or movement advice would you have given to your, say, 20-year-old self? Oh, that's a good question. And I have a great answer for that because I was, I was an extremist. And I, I pushed as hard as I could, as often as I could, relentlessly. I, I got involved in the martial arts and... I was just hyper-focused on getting my black belt, and that's really all that mattered for a few years. And so I was training really hard and, um, of course, got injured because of that. And then the same thing with rock climbing. I just really, really wanted to climb at a high level and was, was pretty obsessive about it. So as I get older and wiser, I hope, um, I begin to see the value in moderation and the value in what what they call the inverse U curve, this upside down U-shaped curve that we see all over health. I mean, every sort of health practice, substance, process, anything that touches the body seems to fall in onto this U-shaped curve where there's a hypo and a hyper and a sweet spot right in the middle. And it's almost like this 
big flag that's out there waving at us all the time. So look for balance, look for moderation, look for the sweet spot between hyper and hypo. So that's the advice I would give my 20-year-old self. And I have a feeling uh, there are quite a few, uh, and see, your, your dogs agree in there, see, again, in the background, but I think that's, that's, for the most part, like, at any age, that's something just, hey, go out, stay, stay in the middle. I mean, if you're a high-end athlete and that's what you have to be able to do, well, all right, maybe you're going to have to sacrifice other things to do it, but if you're going to just right. stay healthy, like, get a bunch of different types of movement, don't go crazy all into one and just enjoy the ride, I think. Right. And it's hard because I think in our culture, we have, there's a real strong tendency to glorify extremism and to glorify athletes who just abandon everything else in their life except for that one thing. And we reward them with our attention. And so we bring other people into that, that mode of living. And I think there's a time and, the, and a place for that. But as a as a career-long style of living, I don't think it makes sense. I think, you know, there's different, the, the, there's an arc to our lifestyle, a career arc. And things that are appropriate in your 20s aren't appropriate when you're 40 and so on. And so I think as, as we get older, we, we have some sensitivity to that. Frank, a couple questions that I, uh, I usually like to close the show with. And one of the first ones is, who would you want to hear on this podcast? Well, if you could get Sapolsky, that would be the guy. I mean, he, he's my intellectual mentor, and his intelligence is, is just breathtaking on so the body. What would you want to hear him either talk about, or what would you want to ask him? Well, I've read all this stuff about stress, and that's, that's very good. He, and he talks a lot about the challenge of SES. And what that means, you know, I've, I've had conversations with him about taking care of the brain and the prefrontal cortex, and he has really strong opinions about that and the effect of, of poverty on, on the human body and the human brain. So, you know, he's a, he's a tough guy to get, but if you could get him, that would be spectacular. I'm always up for the challenge. There are always people are throwing different ones <laughs> yeah. out here. And it's fun, hey, trying to just reach out, see who we could talk to, because yeah. that's what it's all about, just sharing this with everybody, trying to help them learn whatever it is that they're looking for. So trying, last yeah. thing that I ask everybody then, too, is what is the one non-negotiable health habit you have that you never compromise on? But before you answer that, everybody has to go check out the show notes over at BareNakedHealthPodcast.com. And what are they going to find in the show notes? Where can they, where can they find more of your work? Uh, where are you at on uh, the internet here, Frank? Exuberant Animal. That's all you need to remember. ExuberantAnimal.com. And easy to find. Website, all the regular stuff. You know, It's there all there. Go. So make sure everybody yeah. head over. ExuberantAnimal.com. Check that out. And uh, Frank, thank you again for coming on the show. This has been a blast. I appreciate it. Super fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to get your top 10 world-class nutrition tips from the experts to help you simplify your health journey. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Also, if the show has helped you out in any way, 
please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health Podcast a positive comment and a five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others.